0: Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, sponsored by Big Sky Bikes, The Trailhead, Skin Chic, The Bitteret Brewing Company, Parkside Credit Union, and the Clark Fork Coalition. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventure both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about this week's show online at trail1033.com. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are recording on location in Gisborne, New Zealand, and that is on the northeastern corner of the North Island of New Zealand. I found out recently that this was the place where they filmed Whale Rider. It is also the place where Captain Cook first touched down on the land on October 8th, 1769. It's beautiful here. I arrived three days ago and the airport was small. We were flying over farmlands and forests and I fell in love. I could easily see myself living here for part of the year. It's a beautiful place. Right now we are sitting at the Sea Company Memorial House which is next door to the Taira Feti Museum. There's many ways that you can say the name of the museum that we're sitting in right now in the Maori language, which has many different dialects. One way is saying te fare tona, which is the house of treasure, or a different way of saying museum. Another way is to say te kumo penese, and that is how you say the company. Now I'm sitting here with one of the volunteers of the museum. Her name is Zandria Tare. She is the granddaughter of Sir Hinare Nata, and the great-granddaughter of Sir Ape Rana, who is on the New Zealand $50 note. First of all, thank you so much, Sandria, for agreeing to meet me on the trail less traveled and recording this interview. Oh, thank you. My first question for you, Sandria, is where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood?
1: Haha. <laughs> so I grew up here in Gisborne. In particular, a lot of our childhood was spent at our grandparents'. We're here in Stout Street in the C Company house and their house is just a few blocks away in the area called Whataupoko. When we were growing up there weren't many houses down that street, it was a great place to explore. They had rather a large section and these days houses are smaller, you don't have much of a lawn because both parents are working and nobody's got the time to maintain the outdoors but theirs was a large section it had what we called a gully and we used to go down there playing cowboys and indians we had bamboo growing there we'd make bows and arrows we'd climb trees there were trees galore there were all sorts of fruit trees there mandarins tangelos pears oh locals which required climbing onto the garage roof using the ladder which we'd get skinned alive if our grandmother found out that we'd done that and we had apple trees some of our apple trees kind of hung off the section and over the roadway. You wouldn't believe it now, if you go down that road, there's so many houses. But there used to be an empty paddock across the road from my grandparents' place and people kept their horses in there. And these horses were always jumping the fence to get out and eat the apples. And my grandfather would say, blasted horses, and I thought, you know, I rather liked horses. I used to pick the apples and go and feed them. but. My grandfather was like no no those apples are for us to eat it's like oh okay that particular apple tree it was grafted so it was only one tree but it had three different sorts of apples on it i remember in the middle was the golden delicious and then it had red delicious and then it had some other kind of apple on it and ugh, we always had to go out as kids and collect all the bounty cut out all the rotting bits and we would either freeze them for later use and desserts for my grandmother or her other special favourite was juicing oh my gosh all those tangelos etc and she'd freeze it in those two litre ice cream containers so that she could make punch for when her welfare league parties were held at home oh gosh that was so funny my grandfather used to work in an office and he would leave the house at 8.30 and he'd come home at 5 and basically once he left the house that was woohoo Nana's chance to have her friends over, to have parties, and it was the chance for us kids to make a mess. But there was always the directive, the house must be clean for when Papa walks in through the door. And it was so funny because when he retired all those years later, Nana had to stop having those welfare league parties. (laughs) because (laughs) Having people through his house. Yeah, gosh, homemade punch made from all of that fruit that we had to collect, not to mention the walnuts. We had to get to those before the rats did and then we'd go picking up all these walnuts and buckets down in this gully that they had and uh, then we'd bring them up, spread them out to dry on the front porch and yeah, the nana would have us cracking walnuts. Oh joy, yeah, how's that for adventure? (laughs) (laughs) The gully, it's a bit overgrown now but it was a place where we could climb the trees and we'd be playing war. We had our rifles, they had bolts and everything you know the cap rifles so that when you fired it actually smelled like smoke and we thought we were great we'd dress up in my grandfather's old army caps and when we were kids we didn't realize there was such a thing as the Maori battalion or you know here we were bang bang shoot each other you're dead I shot you know you didn't and then you don't realize until you get older oh actually you know yeah and then here we are sitting in the memorial house to the C Company Māori Battalion soldiers you know life goes full circle. Speaking of adventures when we were kids your friends weren't people that you went to school with or people down the road your best friends were your cousins you know you go and stay over their place which was really your uncle's and they'd come and stay over yours and you were just friends for life because you knew they always had your back Yeah, no, good times. In the days when people had large families. (laughs) Yeah, not much of that anymore.
0: You're listening to The Trail Less Travelled, and we are sitting in the Sea Company Memorial House in Gisborne, New Zealand. I'm speaking with one of the volunteers, Zandria Tare. This place is important to her for many reasons, but one of them is because her grandfather and great-grandfather were very much involved with the Sea Company, and we're going to speak more about that when we come back. But I wanted to talk to you, Zandria, now about this area that we are in. Like I said earlier, when I was flying in, I was flying over a lot of farmlands and a lot of pine forests, and we are right next to the coast where Captain Cook landed in 1769. Let's talk about the iwi, in maori iwi means the big group then from there you get the smaller family groups which is the hapu so let's talk more particular about your family group that you come from and this area that we're in and why
1: it's important to your family group each person has more than one iwi or tribe more than one hapu because, of course, you have your mother and your father coming together and your mother may have belonged to one iwi and your father may have belonged to another. And even if they were from the same iwi, so for instance, I identify very strongly with Ngāti Pro, which is further up the east coast here. Even if they came from the same iwi, their parents may have come from a different iwi or hapū. When we introduce ourselves, if you're in Gisborne, you will often say well I'm from, and you give the iwi or the hapu that the people that you're with right now are more likely to identify with. So for instance, I think of myself primarily as Ngāti Porau, but my grandfather always used to say, never forget you are half Wanganui. And because I've lived most of my life in Gisborne and have been to many of our marae in this area, it's easy to overlook the fact that actually my uh, other grandparents came from the other side of the North Island, from Whanganui. On that side, we are Te Aatihae Nui a Pāparangi. So when you're filling out the census, or those forms to go to university, it pays to pay homage to not just the one that you identify with the most, but to your others. And I suppose too, uh, along those lines, there are scholarships available for the different iwi, and so it would make sense to invoke and to remember your other lineage so that you can make the most of uh, opportunities that are there for you. For instance, we're sitting here in the Sea Company house and there is a wall with photos of all the marae around the area. The importance of that is each soldier who signed up for the Māori Battalion, he it. he, through his blood links, he it to a certain marae. And each marae was asked, before this building opened, to donate a photograph so that it's a visual representation of the area that sent forth its sons to go to war in World War Two. And, I mean, golly gosh, there's a fair few pictures up there, aren't there? A marae is, different ways of describing it, it's a meeting house where the hapu would get together and gather and have meetings or weddings or hold tangi. A tangi is a funeral. It's a whare nui. It's a big house. of whare is house and nui is large. And the reason it was called that is so many people can fit in there and sleep. You can either have chairs in there and hold a meeting or it's a sleeping place. Some marae have a whare nui and also a separate house where the people can lay down the mattresses and sleep. What we'll often do in the whare nui is lay the mattresses down at night time. Everyone goes to sleep and then you pack everything up during the day so that it can be used for other purposes during the daylight hours. Every Māori they have a blood link to a marae. I was actually saying to my daughter this morning, she goes, Where's my Marai mum? I says, Oh, you do not have one Marai for that same reason. So for instance, I fuckapapa to I'm looking right now at Orhaku Marai and so that's a small meeting house in Manituke, which is about eleven Ks south out of Gisbon. So that's my grandmother on my mother's side. However, on my father's side, I fuck up at Pororangi Marae, which is in Waiomata Tini. Waiomata Tini. is where the homestead of Apirana Ngata was built. On my husband's side, his grandfather whakapapa is to Putanga Marae, which is in Tikitiki. Tikitiki is about an hour and a half upstate highway 35, heading up north out of Gisborne. And his grandmother whakapapa to O Mayo Marae, which is further north, following State Highway 35 past Hicks Bay, heading towards Whānau Apanui Territory. And then, of course, if I was to look at my Whanganui connections, those are on the other side of the North Island. Yeah, so each Māori can belong to more than one marae. The word marae, you've got the Farinui, which is the big meeting house, and its marae is like the complex... It's the meeting house, it's the sleeping rooms, it's the dining room. Although the, the Marae Atea, there's a small set of ground in front of the meeting house, and that is where people are greeted, where challenges are set forth to make sure that you come in peace. And all debating, arguments, etc., should be held and settled on the Marae Atea. Once that's sorted, you don't bring any negative energy into the Wharenui or into the dining room even, so yeah.
0: Yesterday when I was walking around the museum, I saw beautiful wood carving, and the Maori word for that is po. And I think some of the po came from different marae around New Zealand. Can you tell us more about that? And then also you said that in front of the marae is an area where different challenges may be set forth to make sure that you're come in peace.
1: Maybe you can tell us more about that as well, please. The marae is where discussions are held. So for instance, we were talking about the foreshore and seabed. For Māori, the foreshore and seabed is a place where we source our food. So it's very important to us to have access to it, unimpeded access, and also for it not to be sullied by oil spills, etc. So the New Zealand government put through a law some years back where they took away ownership. In England, there's that thought of the Queen's Chain, where you keep for public access, and it belongs to the public, and you can't shut it off for personal ownership. And I suppose that's what the New Zealand government wanted to put in place here. But for us, the fact that somebody can tell you that, no, you can't go down there and fish, when this is a way of feeding our families, that, no, we're going to let an international oil company drill for oil here, And then we get up in arms with, well, we've seen the record of oil companies and how even when you try to be careful, sometimes there are spills and then just wreaks havoc on the environment and on the ecosystems that we depend on for our food sources. So, for instance, the government of the day took this foreshore and seabed bill, the Takutai Moana bill, around to the different tribes, seeing if they would agree to it. Of course, nobody agreed to it. And my grandfather, Suhe Naringata was one of the people who spoke very strongly against it. And with his background in business and in Māoridom, he was able to do thorough research to argue that, no, that should not be the case. This is our point, this is our view, and it shouldn't go through. Government didn't listen, as they often don't. They'll say that they're consulting the public, but then they'll go along with whatever it is that they believe to be the best for the people. My grandfather was quite ill at the time, and I was quite worried that it could literally be the death of him. But he was willing to fly down to Wellington, to our capital city in New Zealand, to, as he said, look the parliamentarians in the eye, make them squirm because his arguments and his research would be such that it would be obvious that what they were doing was wrong. Uh, He never got that chance. They set a date that they would listen to submissions and they closed it before he could, in person, catch a flight from Gisborne to Wellington and face them with his submission. Yes, he was quite put out about that, but I was relieved. And he died about a year after that, twelve months later.
0: Zandria, can you tell us about the po, the beautiful intricate wood carvings that I noticed are placed in front of many of the marae?
1: That's actually a point that my son pointed out today. He says, "You know, Mum, I look at the farinui, and not all of them have Maori carvings. Some have rather ornate carvings, and others have none at all." The story for that was when the missionaries came. They said, oh no Māori, you cannot have carvings of your naked ancestors and with their private parts exposed. For us, there's no shame in that. That's reproduction. In some carvings, you'll often see ancestors being born. In others, you'll see, for instance, the whale, from whale rider Kahutia Trangi. What happened was, when the missionaries came, they said, no, no, that's rude, and it's not the way of worshipping God. So they put a stop to that and the art of carving was almost lost. And my great-grandfather, Sir Apirana Ngata, was not the only, but he was one of the people that tried to bring about a renaissance of the Māori arts of not only carving in wood, which you see the intricate carvings on the farinui nui there, but weaving, as in the tukutuku panels, using harakeke or flax, or pingao or keke, the painting of the rafters, so you can see on some of those whare nui, there's intricate kowai fi patterns there. So when you look at some of those meeting houses and they've got no carvings, that can be one explanation for it. Another explanation of course is that they didn't want carvings at all for instance there are some meeting houses that Koti Rikirangi brought about he was moving away from Māori carvings and depicting things in paintings so if you go out for instance to Rongopai Marae and look at their meeting house they have paintings of people riding horses for instance at at the horse races of men in suits And so it's a different way of depicting it was their choice not to have carvings. And some of these other ones, they're newer because the other buildings burnt down. They were old and tinder dry and so new buildings have been erected and either they don't have the skilled people to have carvings on them or they chose to go without and that it was better to at least have an assembly place than nothing at all when things were replaced. The Po, which are situated at the rear of the sea Company house by the river, they were carved and donated. We've got a few carving schools here, one of them is at e i t Thidati, so people were carving them while the sea Company house was being built. A Po is a carved pole which has ancestors or depicting the history of something, and these Po in particular. Uh, situated outside of the Sea Company house to represent the iwi that sent forth the volunteers for the Māori Battalion. The 28th Battalion, or the Māori Battalion as it later became known, was all volunteers. So there were no recruitments or forced enlistment. You often had brothers, not everybody went into the battalion. Some went into the Air Force or the Navy or other branches of the Army the Māori Battalion itself was all volunteers. You are listening to The Trail Less Travelled, recorded on location
0: at the Sea Company Memorial House, Te Fari Tona, the House of Treasure, which is right next to the Tiara Fete Museum in Gisborne, New Zealand, which is on the coast of the North Island. It's a place that is absolutely gorgeous and laid back. It's the place where Captain Cook first landed on October 8th, 1769, and it's also the place where the film Well Rider was made. When we come back, we're going to do a tour of the museum, and we're going to learn more about my guests' grandfather and great grandfather. I'm speaking with Zandria Tare, and she is one of the volunteers at the Sea Company House. Zandria, it's time now for a song, and you are a singer, so it's a special treat to actually have you sing songs for us. Could you please sing a song that reminds you of your early childhood?
1: It's actually a bit of a cracker because one of the songs that reminds me of my childhood, I was about seven when Grease came out, the movie, and my mother went around the house just singing all the time while she was doing the housework or whatever, and I must have picked that up. And I remember um, Olivia Newton-John's, you know, Hopelessly Devoted to You, it came over the radio. I didn't realise my grandfather was watching me in the rear-vision mirror as he was driving, and he was so taken with it. apparently I had all the emotion and all the you know the actions going on in the back seat and uh, when I finished he said oh that was lovely darling and then I suddenly became self-conscious and clammed up <laughs> but you know how they always replay Grease in the holidays and it was playing on TV and I heard that song and it just the memories came back Just every now and again, you know. I don't know how many times I've heard that song, but it was just at that moment. Can you remember? Ah, yes. So, this song, I mean, I love the movie Grease. But this song in particular, it always reminds me of my grandfather. (laughs) Olivia Newton-John, eat your heart out guess mine is not the first heart broken my eyes are not the first to cry not the first to know there's just snow getting over you I know I'm just a fool who's willing to sit around and wait for you. But baby, can't you see? There's nothing left for me to do. And I'm hopelessly devoted to you. But now there's nowhere to hide since you've pushed my love aside. I'm out of my head, hopelessly devoted to you. Hopelessly devoted to you. Ooh. Hopelessly devoted to you oh.
0: You're on the trail as traveled The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series Harvested for you today on location in Gisborne Which is a small surfing community On the north eastern coast of the North Island of New Zealand We are recording on location in the Sea Company Memorial House, Te Fari Tona, the House of Treasures, or Te Como Pene Se, the company. It's next door to the Tia Rafete Museum, and that is here in Gisborne, New Zealand, a place where Captain Cook first landed on October 8th, 1769. I'm speaking with Zandria Tare, who is one of the volunteers at the Sea Company house. And she is the granddaughter of Sir Henare Nata, and the great-granddaughter of Sir Ape Rana, who is on the New Zealand $50 note. I'd like to speak to you, now, Andrea, about the life of your grandfather, an amazing man who lived from 1917 to 2011. And he was knighted for over 30 years of service to the Maori. Now, the 28th Maori Battalion was part of the 2nd New Zealand Division, the fighting arm of the 2nd New Zealand Expeditionary Force. During the Second World War, 1939 through 1945, a frontline inventory unit made up entirely of volunteers. The battalion usually contained between 700 to 750 men, and that was divided into different groups. They trained in Palmerston North and sailed for war in May of 1940. Now your grandfather went overseas to war after he had met his sweetheart and that was obviously very difficult but another really difficult thing that i'm sure you'll talk about later was that he had to spend 4 years in a german prison camp and i'm really excited to hear his life from his granddaughter and in his memorial it says his heart zandrea Atari.
1: papa henare was born in 1917 he was actually named after a soldier who died in world war 1 and if we look over to our left we can see Henari Kohere over there. Henari Kohere was the son of a rangatira, a great chief in his own right. He wasn't like a lot of the younger soldiers that went over when they were like 19, 20. He already had children, he was married and he was in his 40s, but he was a great loss. He's buried in Belgium it's only recently been the 100th anniversary of his passing and some of the Kohere family travelled over to France and Belgium to commemorate that. But Henari Kohere died in 1916 and my grandfather was born a year later in 1917. Henari Kohere's father was good friends with my great-grandfather, Suapirana Ngata. And so when my grandfather was born, and like most in those days, he was born at home in the bungalow at Waiumatutini on the east coast. He was named after Henari Kohiri to remember this great man who lost his life in World War I. So a bungalow, it's a style of building. When I was growing up, we've always known it as the bungalow. But when it was first built between 1910 and 1920, people called it the Whare which in English is the new house. And so that was where my grandfather He was born, and it was the home of Suapirana Ngata when he wasn't working in Parliament in Wellington. It had a Māori room, which when we look at these photos of the whare with Māori carvings of wood and tukutuku panels, woven stories with keke or harakeke, painted rafters on the ceiling. The Māori room was used as a reception room to receive people who came as delegations to visit my great-grandfather, Suapirana. And it was also a way to revive arts which he feared would otherwise be lost, such as wharewhakaero, carving with wood, tukutuku and kōwhaiwhai. So my grandfather grew up knowing of the connection to the kōhere When World War II started, It was actually his father, Su Apirana Ngata. He was a politician at the time and he put it to the New Zealand government of the day that there should be a Māori battalion. Apirana's view was the price of citizenship. You don't just take all the good things that come with being a British citizen, the right to be treated equally, the right to work, the right to vote, you must give back. And so, even though Māori were not always being treated equally, his view was, this is the price of citizenship. This is what we must do in return for all the good things that we receive from the British government. Therefore, when she has a call to arms, we should also answer it. So, my grandfather didn't sign up straight away. And I know he thought that his father must have been thinking, hey, what's this kid up to? (laughs) However, he signed up in 1939, sailed overseas in 1940. He married my grandmother, Rora Lorna Medikini from Wanganui. He married her in February 1940, and he sailed away in May 1940. So they didn't have much time together. In fact, they were in training at the time in Palmerston North at Trentham, and he had to get time off to get married. There was a huge flood and some of the fellow officers and soldiers that attended the wedding had actually snuck away on AWOL, absent without leave. And I think without the flood, that may have gone unnoticed, but they weren't able to get back to camp (laughs) because of this huge flood. My grandmother's marae is Pūtiki and it's near the banks of the Whanganui River. So up came the water. Apparently the bride had to be piggybacked by the groom at some stage. But because he was in training and because he went overseas, they didn't have much of a married life together. He was taken prisoner very early in the peace and the Greek campaign. And yes, was a prisoner of war for a long time. There was a sense of shame for some of the PIWs that they didn't do their bit. Myself, I was happy that he was taken prisoner because it kept him away from the line of fire. My brother and I, we grew up reading commando war comics and watching all those movies like The Great Escape, and we would say, did you ever try to escape Pop? And he was like, oh no, (laughs) our brown skins would have given us away. And they were very brown compared to the other Pākehā soldiers. Luckily for him, he was in an officer's camp, so he had better treatment than other soldiers. One of the soldiers that he was in the prisoner of war camp with was Arnold Reedy. Arnold Reedy is also from the Sea Company area and in fact Whakapapa, so he is a, related to my grandfather through his mother on the Tamati side through the Fariponga links. My grandfather was 21 when he signed up, newly married. Arnold was married and had children and so he was older I suspect that had they not been prisoners of war together for so many years, even though they were related, they would not have been that close. But when they got back to civilian life, they were good friends for many years and served on a lot of committees and councils together. One of the stories my grandfather used to tell us, he didn't like to talk about the war, but certain things he would come out with, like... Oh, the coffee in Egypt was so strong, it was like syrup. And we'd be like, you were in Egypt? And oh yes, and I saw the pyramids, and I sent photographs home of riding a camel, but Nana never received them, so we figure they must have been sunk. The ship that was bringing home the mail must have gone down to the bottom of the Atlantic. When he was taken prisoner, they were herded like cattle, he said, onto these freight trains and just taken across country at first in greece they were kept together in pens of course after the greek campaign came crete and that's when the germans had that huge parachute drop and he said our guards at one stage were paratroopers young fit looking blokes and then we woke up one day and they were gone Of course, later they heard about the Battle of Crete and about the heavy losses that the Germans suffered through the paratroopers. From Greece he was taken to Germany and moved by rail. They were so hungry and thirsty. And as they came through certain villages, more POWs would be crammed in and probably nothing like how the Jews were treated, but I suspect... They got a small taste of being squashed in these carriages and not fed or watered well. He said they were travelling through, was it Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia? And they had stopped at a station and the peasants were coming. Obviously they were trying to get food to their own soldiers that were taken prisoner on this train. And the train started to pull out. Well the peasants were still trying to hand out this food so they just started throwing this bread and my grandfather managed to get hold of one and he said fresh white bread and it tasted so wonderful when you hadn't had much to eat. Uh, that was something in later years after he became an accountant and had his own business he never went without. He always made sure that there was plenty of food in the cupboards. There was always a store in the freezer of meat or of canned goods. And he never thought twice about treating himself. He must have gone through so many years of being hungry and it's like he deserved the good things in life that he'd worked hard for. I remember him saying that the Red Cross parcels were what kept them alive. And back home people would fundraise Nana would go down with the other women at the par and they would hold dances and send over care packages of food and of clothing, knitting socks and sweaters and things like that, all for the war effort. And he said those kind of things were what kept them going. So in later years, as you hear people speak disparagingly of charities like, oh yeah, I wonder how much of that money is getting to the people who are actually suffering in hurricane relief or in, uh, for instance, the earthquakes down in Christchurch. He always gave donations to the Red Cross if they were out gathering in the street. The Red Cross was what kept them going as PIW, so he supported that. He said there were all sorts of nationalities in the POW camps. He made some very good friends with Canadians. He said in winter it was so cold. You'd go to run the tap for a shave and the water has frozen in the pipes. (laughs) Ice hockey. Hockey one, hockey two, hockey three. And he says all the New Zealanders would immediately fall flat on their faces and the Canadians would be skating around. (laughs) There were some Scottish men in the camp. Some took it upon themselves to see if the story really was true, that they wore nothing under their kilts. So they upended one of the Scots and, yes, found out the truth. (laughs) He didn't talk a lot about the hardships of being a POW. Some years later I came across some of his letters that he had written to Nana and prisoners were always trying to escape. He said they didn't try because of their brown skins and they couldn't speak German once they got out. But others did try to escape and there were reprisals, there were punishment for those left behind in the camp. At one stage he was manacled for a a month or so and I know Nana found that very hard to think of the fact that he was handcuffed. When I asked him about it, he got quite uptight. He thought he'd told my grandmother to burn all those letters and obviously she hadn't. (laughs) I'd come across one or two hard times. He also said that some of the well-to-do POWs, especially the British, were used to having butlers to do things for them and here they were on their own having to fend for themselves with very little. And he said they let themselves go and they didn't wash and they didn't shave and he thought, I'm not going to let that happen to me. So he read what material there was. He studied, and he took it upon himself to shave every day, even into his old age. If he landed up in hospital with a bout of pneumonia, he insisted on shaving himself. Thank you very much. I don't need help from nurses. Yeah, to always take a pride in his appearance. And that stemmed from seeing others in the prison of war camp,
0: you are on the trail, less traveled. Recorded on location in Gisborne, New Zealand. We are in the Sea Company Memorial House, the Tefare Tona, House of Treasure, or Te Como Penese, the company. The Sea Company Memorial House is next door to the Tiara Fete Museum, and this is a memorial house for the 28th Maori Battalion to remember those who served. Zandrea, it's time for another song, and... If you just tuned in, Zandrea is a absolutely phenomenal singer, and it's such a treat to have you sing songs. So can you sing a song from the war era that was composed for the battalion?
1: There were many songs that were written during the war years, a lot of them by Tweening who comes from the Sea Company area. One of the ones that I'm going to sing for you now, I was in the Sea Company house yesterday, and some visitors just struck this song up and started to sing. And everybody in the house who was of Māori descent just picked it up and started singing. And we had some visitors from Sri Lanka and they came up to me afterwards and said, oh, would you mind singing that again? And is it all right if we record it on our phones? I think They found it amazing that there were all these people in here, not necessarily related or know each other, but we were all able to, (laughs) with one voice, just join in on one of these songs, which is famous in our area. I suppose other parts of New Zealand had their own composers who composed songs for their soldiers. But yes, this one is the one that they requested that we sing yesterday. So, this song is composed by Twining Away. What they used to do was they'd take a popular song of the day, I don't know, maybe, maybe some American listeners might recognize the tune, and they would set the words to it. Although it sounds jaunty and happy, the things that it speaks of are actually quite sad. <laughs> Te puehu e hu o ka tautu te mana me te whi e te mana me te whi e hei hoki Ki te fiti pā māmā waewae te aroha enga kino nei o tiraite nei wahai ere mate ki ngā ki ngā e mana You are
0: on the Trail Less Traveled, recorded on location in Gisborne, New Zealand. The Trail Less Traveled is the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. We are recording at the Sea Company Memorial House, the Te Fare Tona, House of Treasure, next to the Tiara Fete Museum. Gisborne is a small surfing community on the northeastern coast of the North Island of New Zealand. We are sitting in the Sea Company Memorial House next to the Tia Refete Museum in Gisborne, New Zealand. Gisborne is on the northeastern coast of the North Island of New Zealand. I'm speaking with Zandria Tare. She's one of the volunteers at the Sea Company House, and she is the granddaughter of Sir Henare Nata and the great-granddaughter of Sir Ape Rana, who is on the New Zealand $50 note. Zandria, can you tell us a little bit more about the Sea Company Memorial House, and in particular, what is the legend
1: of the Maori battalion? Oh, that's a goodie. We're sitting here in the Sea Company House, and even the way that it's been designed gives you an idea of what it's here for. So it's Te Whare Taonga or Te Kamupene C, the memorial house for C Company. C Company is only one part of the Māori Battalion. You had A Company, which were all the tribes from up north. You had B Company, which were the tribes from the middle of the North Island, Rotorua, Whakatane, Tauranga, those areas. You had C Company, which was us, the east coast. And that came from Tōrere, right up the top of East Cape, you've got Hicks Bay, Whānau those things coming down through Ngātipurou, Gisborne, going down to Aitanga Mahaki and Rōngo so out to Muriwai. Then you had D Company. D Company was a portion of the Lower North Island and the whole of the South Island. And you're like, what? The whole of the South Island? It's a lot of land area but not many people live in the South Island compared to the North. And then of course Headquarters Company. So when we talk about C Company, it's just the east coast portion of the Māori Battalion. And that's what this house was built to commemorate those who paid the price of citizenship during World War II as a part of the 28th Battalion, which in later years became known famously as the Māori Battalion. So we're sitting in this building, and if we look at it, it's shaped like a cross. As we move through the building, when you come through the front doors, it's not just a memorial to only the Māori Battalion, it's to any serviceman or servicewoman from the Gisborne area. So as you come in through the front doors, on your left you start off with the Boer War in South Africa, and then you move through time. You then carry on and you come to World War I, moving around further, World War Two, Then you've got J-Force, which are those that served in Japan after World War I, and then moving into later campaigns like Malaya, korea borneo coming around the corner vietnam peacekeeping it's really nice that it includes everybody it's not just something for maori what's the legend of the maori battalion so the maori battalion was famously feared for not giving up for always being on the attack the statistics show that the maori battalion had the highest losses And losses are not just through deaths, but through wounded, killed in action, died of wounds, taken prisoner. Because they were well-renowned for their battle prowess, they were often in the forefront of attacks. And I suppose that's where they had those high casualty rates. A letter was found from a German soldier writing home, in which he was saying, Oh, mother, tomorrow we face the feared Māori battalion. Like, good heavens, gosh, you know, what are we going to be up against? And Rommel is said to have written, Give me a Māori Battalion and I will take on the world. Because of course Rommel was based in North Africa where the Maori Battalion fought. Our boys were involved in battles like El Alamein, Takruna, and of course Tabaga Gap where Moanangarimu, who's from this area, where he was awarded the Victoria Cross. Thank you so much,
0: Zandria, for meeting me here on the trail as traveled and recording this interview in this very important structure, the C Company Memorial House, Te Faretona, Te Como Penese, the House of Treasures for the Company. Thank you. Before we end, I would love it if you could give us a Maori language lesson. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's good. So you've got people that are fluent and then you've got people like me that learned it at school. So I could give you a beginner's lesson. <laughs> so for instance, one way of greeting somebody is to say, tēnā and that's to one person. Tēnā if you were greeting two people or tēnā katoa, if you were greeting a group of people. And that's like a formal way of doing it. What you'll often get is, kia ora. Ora is health or to be well. It can be a greeting, like, hi, how are you? I hope you're well. It can also be, kia ora, like, thank you. And so it's all in the way it's said, in the context, I suppose. So that's to greet somebody. When somebody is leaving, you can say, haere rā, that's if I'm leaving. If I was going to be staying here, I'm going to remain seated while somebody else is leaving, I would say, in e thehora, Little kids when they're first learning Māori at school. E noho is to be seated. And so that's a clue in the in e noho ra. And I suppose one other one. no mai haramai. And that's welcome. So for instance, when I'm greeting people at the door, if I see that they're Māori, I'll say to them, haramai, which means come in, come towards you. Sometimes people will stand back because they're not sure, do I have to pay to come in here? And it's free entry. If you want to give a donation, you can. It's open to the community and it's for the community. Zandria, let's
0: end this program with three adventure tips.
1: Adventure tips? You know, we went on a trip overseas. It was more like a pilgrimage. We've visited many battle sites and Commonwealth cemeteries where the Māori Battalion took part in World War II. And you know what? One thing I've picked up, and which you probably already know, is don't put all your luggage through. Keep one carry-on bag with your toothbrush and some undies and things like that. And then that way, huh, you can send the rest of your luggage through to stay on the airport overnight while you go to that hotel for a seven-hour kip. <laughs> Tip number one. Tip number two. You know what? I don't travel often. So it always catches me out, and when I do travel, I'm usually staying with whānau, with family. Tip number two is, always take your pyjamas, and then you're not caught out having to sleep in your t-shirt and undies at somebody else's house. Tip number three, check the shower before you leave. Don't leave your expensive G-jaws and your shampoo and all that behind. Maybe you could add on one more tip for people who
0: are coming to New Zealand or travelling around New Zealand.
1: Gee, a tip for people travelling in around New Zealand. I was saying to a chap that had some German visitors yesterday, the Kiwi way is to just get involved. For instance, if somebody's broken down on the road, you stop and you help them, or if somebody's having a heart attack, you stop and give them CPR. And we were talking about how in other countries, if you were to do that, well, holy heck, you might get a gun pulled on you Uh, if you pull over and try and help somebody with a flat tyre. And if you try and give somebody CPR and break a rib, you could end up being sued. So we roll a different way here in New Zealand. We get involved. If we see somebody's lost, we're like, oh, you're right there, bro. You need a hand. Somebody might have nowhere to stay. And so, you know, jump in the car We'll drive around the backpackers and see if there's, oh, you can't find one or maybe you just want to stay at our place. So it's really laid back here as something which I think you referred to. Maybe in these smaller towns we're more inclined to be that way than in the busy cities.
0: Sandrea, what song would you like to end
1: the show with? So if I'm ending the show, I'm thinking, you know, we're in the C Company house where there's a lot of World War II memories. I feel inclined to end on uh, one of those songs. This one is probably recognisable from the tune. This is another one composed by R Y, and this is to remember... Mwana Nui a Kiwangarimu, who died in Northern Africa, in Tunisia, and never made it home. And he is the one Māori during World War II that was awarded the Victoria Cross. E tōko fitua ti kākahara, kāti ka rā hinga hinga kirarora manga rā. Māngo whakaro ke rungarawa, e arahi ki tāre tika ai. firinaki firinaki whirina ki, whirina ki tata kato kia kota hira ngā marae e tūnoa nei ngā maunga e tūnoa nei auerā e ta mama he mama e te pauri nui e patu nei i a hauina ngā rimu auerā Ko e ko e, 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 tangi nei e e toko kahara, whitu a te hinga hinga kira rora Manga fa karu e runga rua e arahi re tika ai pirina ki, ki tatakato. Kya kota hira, puritiya ki amak yeah,
0: Kia ora, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Subscribe to The Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes, and check out Traveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. Tonight's episode was recorded on the northeastern coast of New Zealand. I would like to thank my guest for this week, Zandria Tare, a descendant of the Maori Battalion and volunteer at the Sea Company Memorial House in Gisborne, New Zealand. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, Back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail as Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world, in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is to do your research before getting a tattoo on your body which is in another language. Sometimes just the slightest alteration of calligraphy can change the entire meaning of the tattoo. There are resources out there linguists and scholars, for example that can help you with this. Well, that's it for this week's adventure my friends in Missoula and around the world but until next week's adventure please get outside and shred the gnar because as you know the Gnar simply cannot shred itself.